This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The state's four major hospital systems set deadlines for required COVID-19 vaccinations for their staff as the Delta variant sends our case count soaring. It signals a sense of urgency as hospitalizations and deaths are back on the rise. Hilton Rathel is with the Healthcare Association of Hawaii. HH had uh, called for the mandate upon full FDA approval, but a number of our members have gone ahead and said that they're not waiting for full FDA approval, even though we're expecting that to happen uh, potentially this month or maybe September. We don't know, but it may happen that soon. In regard to um, the all organizations are required to provide um, for religious or medical exemptions, and each organization will have specific guidance as to exactly what that means uh, based on their legal counsel. Now, if you have medical or religious exemptions, then there'll be some sort of testing required. And some organizations are saying that if you're a patient-facing, in other words, if you do direct patient care, you'll need to be tested at least weekly or maybe even twice weekly. But most organizations would expect that if you do receive an approved exemption, you'll be required to be tested probably at least weekly for the indefinite future. So that's the choice. Um, You either get vaccinated or if you qualify for an exemption, then you'll need to be tested. So absent the full FDA approval, the organization is basically saying, we just think this is a prudent thing to do right now, get everybody mentally prepared for vaccinations because 80% isn't good enough. Yeah, we know that 80% isn't good enough. And there's an expectation amongst the public and your listeners that healthcare workers, and it's not just direct patient care, it's the people who check you in, it's the people who you work with in terms of paying your bill, it's the people who, the therapists, you know, it's it's the lab technicians. There's an expectation amongst many of the public that healthcare workers should be vaccinated. And some even express surprise as to, well, you have people who are not vaccinated. And we absolutely believe that this is the right thing to do. These vaccines, the ones we're using in the U.S. specifically, Pfizer and Moderna, are extremely safe, very, very effective. It has been demonstrated in our own nursing homes, in our own facilities. And we know right now that most of our hospitalizations over 90% of our hospitalizations that are occurring right now are unvaccinated individuals. So we know these vaccines are safe, we know they're effective, and we absolutely believe that for healthcare workers at least, that there is a requirement and an obligation for them to be fully vaccinated. And what can you tell us about the hospitalization of children who can't be vaccinated you know, because they're underage? Yeah, currently there is no vaccines approved for anyone 11 or younger. Pfizer has applied for emergency use authorization for individuals 8 to 11, and they're also working on clinical trials for children younger than 8. So the risks of transmission still exist for children, but in general, fortunately, this COVID virus and the different variants of the virus have not had a huge impact on children, but there's still a risk. There are still children in our hospitals because they can't get vaccinated. They are at risk. Fortunately, it's a relatively low number, but there have been some deaths in the U.S. of children from COVID. And again, they're not eligible to be vaccinated right now. So there is a risk. Fortunately, it's a lower risk than for adults. We don't know exactly why the risk is much lower for children, but the risk for children from COVID is not zero. What about the issue of of being a long hauler? That is a very real and ongoing concern. Um, Something like 10 to 15%, some of the estimates are that 10 to 15% of people who are hospitalized because of COVID do develop long-term symptoms, and it's called long COVID, long hauler, different labels for it. It's still, because the virus is still relatively new, it's less, you know, it's been in existence for almost two years now. We still don't know a lot about it, but there are, again, 10 to 15% of people are hospitalized experiencing these conditions. That's a pretty high percentage. And the, you know, there's a variety of conditions, some muscle weakness, fatigue, memory loss, other types of conditions. There's a, there's a range of them. And some of those conditions can persist and be somewhat debilitating 
for many months. Now, how long these conditions will stay for, we don't know yet because the virus hasn't been around long enough. But there are individuals who are reporting these conditions for six months, eight months, nine months. The virus hasn't been around that much longer for us to know, again, how long these symptoms may continue to persist for. And we are seeing, though, more children being hospitalized with COVID here in Hawaii. That is correct, and the, that's partly because the infection rate is going up dramatically. Last year, in August, at the peak of the pandemic here in Hawaii, we had 124 infections per 100,000 population. Now, that was August last year when there was no vaccines available because the vaccines did not become available until December. For the last week, we had 126 infections per 100,000 people. That was our rate. So now we know that overwhelmingly most of the people who are being infected and hospitalized right now are unvaccinated. So when you compare the infection rate for last week, which is 126 per 100,000, to the infection rate for last year at its peak of 124, and we know that approximately 60% of our population is vaccinated, that means... In the unvaccinated population, we have twice the infection rate now than what we did at the peak of the pandemic last year. And that just shows you how scary this Delta variant is, how quickly it's spreading, and it's spreading amongst children and adults. We have today 154 people in hospitals across the state who are on COVID, fortunately because most of the individuals, 90 plus percent of individuals, 65 and above, are fully vaccinated. So they're protected and very few of those are ending up in hospitals. What we're seeing ending up in the hospitals are some kids, unfortunately, and 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds because they're unvaccinated, these young adults. They believe that they're not going to get it. They believe they're young. They believe they're healthy. The Delta variant does not care. It doesn't care if you're sick. It doesn't care what age you are you can be infected and you could potentially end up in hospital. Last week, unfortunately, we had 10 deaths in Hawaii. And for those 10 deaths, 100%, none of those deaths last week, the 10 deaths, were vaccinated individuals. They were all unvaccinated. You know, many people are concerned because students are back into the classroom today. You know, there's lots of back and forth about what do we do? Do we hunker down again until we can get these numbers down? Yeah, these are questions that are, you know, the governor and the mayors and Department of Education and the LG and Department of Health are all struggling with. You know, we've got 60, just over 60% of our population, entire population, fully vaccinated, which is very good, but it's not good enough. And even if this vaccination campaign and the announcements that we made yesterday and other organizations are making about the vaccine mandate, because we believe that the majority of healthcare organizations will jump on board and we believe that a number of non-healthcare organizations will also jump on board. We know the counties are looking at potential mandate. We know the governor's looking at a potential mandate. So the counties for the county workers and city workers and the governor for state workers. So they're looking at mandates. I don't know if they're actually going to do it, but they're certainly seriously considering it. But even if all that happens and all these mandates are announced, you know, it's three weeks between shots and then there's two weeks to get the full benefit of immunity after you get your second shot. So even if everyone were to run out and get themselves vaccinated or a whole bunch more people, you don't get that full protection. It's 45 to 60 days before you get that full protection. We believe even if the numbers increase, and there's some early evidence that the vaccination numbers are starting to increase, we don't get the full benefit of that for the next 45 to 60 days. We're in this time period now where this Delta variant is spreading rapidly. Our hospitalization numbers, as I said, 154 today, 10 days ago, there are 90. So they've gone up by more than 50% in 10 days. And the numbers are continuing to climb. So the question is, how bad is it going to get? in the next 45 to 60 days until we can get enough of these unvaccinated people vaccinated so we can really break this cycle. You know, it could take us 90 days to get to that point. The governor set these bars, these thresholds a few months ago, the 60%, the 70%. That was before the Delta variant became as prevalent as it is and as deadly as it is. So the overwhelming consensus now is that the 70% threshold is not high enough because of the Delta variant. We need to be 80, 85% 
fully vaccinated. So we need 100 to 150,000 additional people to get vaccinated before we really believe that we will break this chain of transmission and be able to bring those numbers down. The question is, is how long will it take us to get to that additional 100 to 150,000 people? Could be kids if Mm -hmm. the 8 to 11-year-olds, if the FDA provides emergency use authorization for that group. It could be a lot of people are waiting for full FDA approval, and if that happens this month or next month, that may help as well. But we know that we have the worst of this particular wave or surge in front of us yet. We're not at the peak yet for this surge, and that is very concerning for us. Right, and so that's why there's this sense of urgency now. Absolutely. The infection rate, the positivity rate, we're looking at a positivity rate of 6% right now. On Sunday, just for one day, we had a positivity rate of 11%, but that was one day. The seven-day average right now is 6%, but that's a big jump up from what we have seen. The number of infections, you know, we're looking at triple digits, 200, 300 a day. There's a lag between positivity rate and infections and hospitalizations. We're already at 154 hospitalizations today, so we absolutely believe that that number is going to continue to go up. Our staff and our hospitals are stressed, they're tired, frustrated because overwhelmingly the people who are showing up in the hospitals are unvaccinated. This is a preventable disease and until we get enough people vaccinated, we will continue to see illness, hospitalizations and deaths from the COVID pandemic. That was Hilton Rathel, head of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii, talking about the decision by Queens, Kaiser, Hawaii Pacific Health, and Adventist Health to mandate the COVID-19 vaccines for their staff to help curb the spread of the virus. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Remember the nice, cool retreat of a theater on a hot summer day? Well, for today's quiz, we are looking at the history of movie going on the Big Island. In the 20s and 30s, the theaters sprouted up all across the island to cater to the new craze of talking movies, or talkies. The theater scene was dominated by one name, the Tanimoto family. Hatsuzo Tanimoto came to Hawaii from Japan in 1891, and at one time, Tanimoto and his wife Momi owned and operated at least one movie theater in nearly every town on the island. Many of these venues still exist, although some have been repurposed for performing arts groups, churches, or community centers. For today's quiz, we want to know which of the following Big Island theaters was not at one time operated by the Tanimotos. The Aloha Theater, the Halualoa Theater, the People's Theater in Honoka'a, or the Palace Theater in Hilo. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareethawaii.com. Thousands of public school students returned to the classroom today. Here on Oahu, some took the city bus. 
For the past month, Robert Yu has been in the driver's seat of the bus, Oahu's public bus transportation service. But he is no stranger to the operation. He spent 26 years at Oahu's transit services before he went over to Hart as chief financial officer. But the pandemic and the drop-off in bus ridership makes ramping up for the new school year a challenge. As of now, our ridership is about um, 60% of pre-pandemic. With the school coming on, we're adding about 43, 44 hours a day throughout the island. That equates to about maybe 19 routes, I think, to service all the schools. Now, I cannot tell you how the ridership with the youth will look like because um, many things is still pretty uncertain, right? How, how many children are comfortable going back to school and whether the family feel comfortable for them to ride the bus. Now, from the bus standpoint, we're, we're trying to do everything we can to make not just the youths, but the adults comfortable. You know, we have nightly cleaning. That, that's been pretty standard since the pandemic, but more intense cleaning since the pandemic. We require masks at all times riding on the bus. Our air conditioning system draws in fresh air between 35 to 75 times an hour, depending on the type of bus and the size of the bus. We have a policy to social distance riders, but you know that's, all, that, that's not always possible. And our approach is for a 30-foot bus, we want to have at most 20 people on the bus. You know, for a 40-foot, we want to have at most, I think, 25 on the bus. And for a 60-footer, we want at most up to 30. That's the guideline we tell the drivers. But obviously, they are the boss on the road, and they need to keep track of it, and they need to enforce it. But that depends on a lot of things, right? Right. And then as far as the mask wearing, I mean, I don't know, do they have extra masks at the front of the bus? So if someone tries to get on and, and, uh, and needs no, a mask? No, we do not. We ah, do not okay. have masks, yeah. All right. So but if you don't have a mask, you cannot get on the bus. Okay. And then now they've uh, switched to the holo holo cards. Yes. I mean, how has sure. that been going? Now, in terms of administering the holo card, I do want you to know that OTS as a company does not administer the holo card. It's done by a company called Ulu High Tech, and they have a call center that if our bus customers have questions regarding the holo cart with respect to balance, with, with respect to whether it's working or not, with respect to how do you add more money into the holo cart, they have to call the um, holo cart center. So if uh, any of our listeners have problems with the holo cart, what should they do? They should call 808-768-4656. Again, is area code 808 768 Four six five six, um, and and it's been going pretty well though. It's been going pretty well. We used to collect a lot of currency, you know, as you can imagine. It was either paper pass or people putting money in the fare box. Since July first, our currency actually have dropped by about twenty five to thirty percent. So, and that's a good thing, right? The holo card allows the riders to have an easier way to get on the bus, um, have an easier way to. Um, pay for the ride instead of always have to be carrying cash. Right, fumbling for change. Yeah, so, you know, our hope is one day it'll be an entire cashless transit system. Right, Right. and and I guess the idea is that that's potentially safer, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely, (laughs) yes. If you buy a holo card, please register your card because if you lose your card, you could get another holo card, but you will not lose your balance gotcha. on the card. If you don't register your card, well, you know, you whatever you have on the card is going to be gone. lost. Yeah, okay. and you could know. get yeah, and you could get the cards at our transit center, any ABC stores, Times Supermarket, Seven Eleven, and Foodland. So I know in the last few weeks, when I'm walking around the bus yard, I have people coming up to me, passengers and ask, oh, where could I buy the holo card? They told me to come here. But, well, unless you really need um, a reduced fare card, you could get it, the holo card, at any of those places I just mentioned. Right, and and so this is all part of the modernization plan uh, with the idea that, you know, we're going to be using that for rail uh, as well. Uh, but, you know, one of the other things I know that uh, a lot of cities are pushing is just going to electric 
uh, buses, electric vehicles. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we've started that. We have three that are running. We're going to get 14 more for a total of 17 electric buses. We have seven that would deliver in the last month, and we expect uh, seven more to come in probably by the end of September. Okay, just in the next month or so. Yeah, right. right. So right now we have three running on the road. We're just testing it on the more um, long-distance routes, such as Route 40. It runs from Makaha all the way to Ala Moana Shopping Center. So we're trying to test the range of those buses. In Any term- hiccups? <laughs> well, no, no, no hiccups. It, it's actually going pretty well. But one of the things that we have to keep in mind And I'm not talking about this from an environmental standpoint. I'm just talking about this from just a financial standpoint. An electric bus costs about, I think, $400,000 to $450,000 more than a standard diesel bus. I'm talking about 40-foot buses. And the range of the electric bus is at least the ones that we're getting is 150 miles as compared to a diesel bus, which has a a 40-foot diesel bus has a 120-gallon tank, and it could run unstopped for about 360 miles or so. So with respect to the cost of running the service, we're evaluating, you know, what's the, what are the best routes to employ the electric buses to reduce the cost. And obviously, when you have to bring a bus in and bring another bus out, it costs money. Right, right. Right, Well, talk about the, the transition to rail, you know, because we're hearing that ridership numbers have been adjusted for rail. And you used to work, you know, with Hart, so yeah. you kind of know uh, both sides of the street pretty mm-hmm. well. We're having preliminary discussions with the Department of Transportation Services. What we have now is that we're looking at adding between 75,000 to 110,000 hours of annual service to service the stations. And Obviously, most of the routes, what we call circulator routes, um, circulating from neighborhoods to the transit stations, is between Makikilo and um, and Pearl City or Pearl Ridge. So we're in the process of putting those routes together, but preliminarily, it's between seventy-five to one hundred ten thousand hours each year, depending on how we want to structure it at the end. I'm guessing it'll be closer to at least 100, 110,000. Okay, but what, it, what does that mean as far as personnel and... Oh, okay, um, that's a good question. That means for that significant increase in service, we would need close to 80, 85 additional drivers. And that's really one of the things that we're evaluating hard on to see how do we go about getting 80, 85 additional drivers. Just as comparison, we try to hire about 100 drivers a year because of attrition, you know, retirements and and whatnot. So if the city wants to put in the rail integration service beginning July 1st of next year, well, I could tell you honestly that we will have a challenge getting the 80 to 85 additional drivers. We've got to start now. Well, actually, we are starting now. You know, we have a new driver class that's going on right now. And in September, when they graduate, we have another class coming on board. And we're going to continuously do that until we could get up to the number of drivers that we need. Now, on the other hand, we have not had a um, set deadline that the city told us that they want to start rail service. Mm-hmm. So that's something that we're also waiting on, too. That was Robert Yu, who took over the reins as president and general manager of Oahu Transit Services this summer. He says right now there are about 960 bus drivers on the road, and he projects that demand to grow once the rail is in operation. So you're looking for a job? Top scale for drivers is 36 bucks an hour. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, following health guidelines, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants and bars in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. 
rubytuesdayhawaii.com. Raquel Nelson and her children tried to cross the road one night. They were hit by a car. Three injured, one killed. There was no safe pedestrian crosswalk. She would have had to walk a round trip two-thirds of a mile out of her way late at night with three children and groceries. From vehicle design to street design, why pedestrian deaths are on the rise. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering Master of Science programs including finance, information systems, marketing, and more. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. For the first time, Hawaii's disabled community is being prioritized in an effort to reduce the barriers to getting the COVID-19 vaccine. Two clinics are being offered starting this Saturday at the Waikele Shopping Center. We talked to Lou Erdershek of the Hawaii Disability Rights Center about the efforts underway. We're doing two vaccine clinics. We, uh, we, we are sponsoring them in, in conjunction with Hawaii Pacific Health. And it, uh, it, the first one will be this coming Saturday, August 7th from 10 to 3 at the Waikele Shopping Center, and, uh, and people can either get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine or the Pfizer vaccine. Since the Pfizer works on a, on a two-dose regimen, we're then going back on August 28th uh, for basically, for the, you, know, to, for, you know, for the purpose of administering the second dose. So uh, we'll be there both days, and uh, Hawaii Pacific Health has a van and they're going to have their medical team there that's, you know, ready, ready, to, ready to administer the, the doses. So what made you folks decide to do this special outreach? Well, in, uh, in, for a couple of reasons. One, one was, uh, as you know, we're part of a national, nationwide system called the Protection and Advocacy System, right? So there's one of us in every state, and we get funded by uh, various agencies at the federal level, uh, the administration on community living in Washington decided to set aside specific sums of money for all the protection and advocacy agencies to do that, specifically to do either vaccine advocacy or vaccine outreach. Uh, they they kind of left it up to the individual agencies to figure out how to best use the money, and so because and so because of that we. we we, we made the decision that the way we would allocate those resources would be to try to help people with disabilities get vaccinated. So that was sort of the origin of it. And so that led us to develop this plan to go out and do the uh, and, and basically do the vaccine clinic. But we also, as part of that, I mean, we, we can arrange to pay for people to get rides to vaccine centers, whether it's our vaccine, whether the one we're doing or others. If people need uh, vaccines in their home, they can, uh, we can we we can help arrange for things like that. Uh, but so that's basically what it is. We had we had a specific uh, specific resources that the federal government decided to allocate for to vaccinate folks with disabilities, and so that's that's what got us into this thing in the first place. And you folks are holding their holding it. There at Waikele, and I know you know we saw the breakdown from the Department of Health of the communities in uh, the vicinity that you know the vaccination rates are are lower. Uh, well, right, right. I mean, when, when we chose Waikele, I mean, I think that the thinking was somewhat twofold. One was that that was located in a part of the island that uh, that actually had a lower rate and so that that was one one good thing about that location and also i i think the thought was that uh you know you know a lot of people maybe would just be kind of out and around uh at white kelly uh on a on a saturday morning and uh and, and that the idea was to try to try to bring the vaccine to the people to where they were so that uh, if there are some people who are having difficulty getting getting down to the regular vaccine centers, then this was a way of kind of bringing it out to them where they would be. And you are also offering interpreters too, right, on site? Right. I mean, so we we will we're going to have 
uh, I mean, the event is ADA accessible, though I, I suspect that a lot of the vaccine sites probably are. But we're going to have an ASL interpreter for people that are deaf or hard of hearing. We're going to have two keys and Tagalog interpreters uh, to try to reach certain segments of our community that may be uh, underserved or, or, or uh, you know, underrepresented in the vaccine data. Uh, so we will, we're going to have that. Our staff has a lot of experience dealing with folks that may be blind or visually impaired or have a developmental disability. So our staff will be there to try to assist uh, these people too. I think it's also important to note that uh, uh, although we are a disability rights agency and that's the focus of the event, anybody can come and get a vaccine, obviously. So it's not like somebody's going to check your disability card when you get in there to be, you know, I mean, I mean, anybody who wants to get a shot can certainly get it uh, right, right then, right there. Okay. And then, you know, while this is uh, here on Oahu, is there anything uh, available then for the disabled community on the neighbor islands? Well, that's a good question. I mean, we had thought at one time about trying to do this on one of the other islands, and though I think we then we then thought that you know let's just let's just deal with it here. Uh, I am sure that there are other vaccine centers, obviously, on the other islands, but that's not really part of uh, this particular project that we're doing. But we will we can still give rides to people on the neighbor islands. I mean, I mean, the funding that we receive from the federal government can be used for a variety in a variety of ways to help these these people get the vaccine. So, on the neighbor islands, if you need a ride, we can we can cover that. And or if you need to make arrangements to get it in your home, we can we can assist with that. So we can serve the whole state, and we do serve the whole state. You know, obviously, you never know how any of these events are going to unfold, but. It certainly is important for people to get vaccinated. So, you know, we're trying to do our part to assist in that effort. And, uh, and I, again, I think the thought was that by making it available to people where they may be shopping anyway on a Saturday in, in, in a location that's closer to some of those low vaccination areas uh, and with the outreach to the disability community and and the presence of, of, of ASL and other interpreters, we're you know we're hoping that this will this will get something accomplished and uh, and get, get some folks vaccinated. And what about for minors? You know, uh, well, they- if you are a minor, you can basically everybody everybody 18 and over is supposed to bring an ID uh, with them to show to show that which shows their birth date. Uh, anybody 12 to 17 is supposed to be accompanied by a parent or a guardian or have a signed parental consent form. Uh, under 12, the vaccines are not approved for anybody, I don't believe. Uh, so from 12 to 7, so basically you, you can get it if you're a minor as long as you have your parent or guardian with you or something or something signed by them authorizing the administration of the vaccine. And 18 and over, you know, you don't need anybody else, but you do need your ID. And there's no health, health insurance is not required either, uh, nor, you know, and you don't, you don't need an appointment. Uh, so it's really easy to just walk up, get it, and, you know, it's totally free. I think we were even offering uh, like free malasadas and, and, and other things and enter people into a drawing for a prize or free shave ice. And so I think we tried to build in some, some you know, small incentives as well. That was Lou Ortechak, Executive Director of the Hawaii Disabilities Rights Center. We will have info on those upcoming vaccine clinics on our website later today. Civil Beat has news about a ruling on an important water rights issue on Maui. Editor Chad Blair joins us for our reality check. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, water rights on Maui, big, big issue. <laughs> yes, and, and also very long standing. I mean, really, the issue over water on Maui and agriculture really dates back to the 19th century, right? The plantation days, sugar cane. 
Uh, in this particular case, uh, a new development came out Friday when Judge Jeff Crabtree issued an order. And in essence, he ordered Alexander and Baldwin uh, to really cut almost in half the amount of water that they are diverting from uh, several over a dozen East Maui streams. Of course, that water is going for agricultural purposes. It's also being used for domestic uses, uh, for industrial use, and so forth. But bottom line, Crabtree says you're wasting a lot of water. And the Sierra Club of Hawaii was actually able to demonstrate to Crabtree that uh, that A and B and its subsidiary East Maui Irrigation could do a better job of not wasting so much of this money, uh, this water. By the way, we're talking. On average, they were diverting about 45 million gallons of water a day from these streams. Uh, Crabtree has ordered them to bring it down to uh, to 25 million gallons a day, which he called a reasonable amount that he thought would meet everybody's purposes. Yeah, I mean, this is a, seen as a win for the taro farmers, right? The farmers uh, of Maui there. Absolutely, and you need water for taro, obviously. And farmers, uh, many of them Native Hawaiian in East Maui, have been objecting for years that they're not getting uh, the water that they need and that it's going all the way out to the central plain there on Maui, you know, where the, the, the former sugarcane lands uh, were. You might remember that A&B actually sold, I think it was about 41,000 acres, this was a couple of years ago, to a company called Mahi Pono, and Mahi Pono is in the diversified ag business. They're trying to make that work. Of course, they need the water to make that happen. Uh, no comment on this ruling from either A and B or Mahi Pono. We should uh, make that clear. Well, and I think uh, uh, you know historically, right? Folks have been concerned about all that water, and uh, you know whether it'll be used uh, for future development of houses uh, of some of this sugar land. Yeah, there are there are people that are suspicious that have said, "Oh no, you're just trying to find ways to to build more homes." And of course, affordable housing is a very serious issue. But there have been concerted efforts in past decades to diversify agriculture. It's still a small slice of our overall GDP. Uh, we're dominated by industries like tourism, the money that we get from the federal government for the the military bases and so forth. But we. You know, think about it. Hawaii once was very much of a breadbasket. Certainly sugarcane and pineapple uh, were dominant up until the 60s and whatnot, phased out most recently. So, but, you know, there, there's strong efforts to try and get this this water flowing. I think the question is, is A and B taking too much of that water? Are they wasting the water? Uh, are they getting unfair uh, treatment or privileged treatment, if you will, from the government? In this case, it would be the Board of land and natural resources that allocates these these water permits. I should let you know that I believe there is a contested case hearing expected before the land board later over the long-term lease that A and B and others have regarding a water usage. But it's, it's, it, this has been fought over for years. The legislature has been involved. Um, the, the Water Commission, it's a very complicated, very serious issue. Water as life, as they say. Yeah, it, I mean, very complex. And, uh, yeah, it's, it is so long and drawn out. We've done many stories over this, <laughs> over the decades. But, yeah, but I, I think, like you said, the small farmers, uh, you know, are hailing this as a victory. Yeah, as well as the conservation groups. Um, by the way, I should say that, that Crabtree, um, just a couple of months ago, actually sided with the land board and A&B uh, in a decision. This was brought forth by the Sierra Club, a lawsuit, a challenge, saying that they're, you know, they're perfectly responsible in balancing the public trust doctrine to find a balance use for this water. So it goes back and forth. It continues. Crabtree, by the way, also made a comment in his uh, report, his um, order, and it's on the story on the website today. You can actually read the order. He also said, you know, this is really not my area to decide water rights. Even though I'm on the environmental court here, ultimately there's many more people that are experts on this. Uh, Pretty much a nudge saying to the land board, to A and B, to others, figure this out. Let's come up with a way that's equitable for everybody. Yeah. They've kind of cut the baby in half, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly Solomon, is No. It? <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Do check out the full story online at civilbeat.org.
today's quiz, we asked you which of the following Big Island movie houses was not operated by the Tanimoto family at one time. Was it the Aloha Theater, the Halualoa Theater, the People's Theater in Honoka'a, or the Palace Theater in Hilo? Well, the Aloha Theater got its current name during World War II. Before that, it was called the Tanimoto Theater after its proprietor, Hatsuzo Tanimoto. As the main social hub of South Kona in the 1930s, the Tanimoto Theater was much loved for its multicultural offerings, including Japanese movies on Mondays and movies from the Philippines on Wednesdays. A few miles up the road was the Holuoloa Theater, which opened in 1929, also called the Tanimoto Theater. There's a theme here. It hosted the first showing of a talking movie in North Kona. The last Tanimoto Theater on our list, you guessed it, the People's Theater. This was one of three movie houses that the family owned in Honoka'a in the 1930s. Unlike these other historic venues, the People's Theater stayed in the hands of the Tanimotos all the way until 1990. And that leaves the Palace Theater, which was not a Tanimoto property. This jewel of Hilo was built by well-known showman Adam C. Baker. And congratulations to Martha of the Big Island. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to Homa Summer Nights with live music, bites, beverages, and art-making workshops on Friday and Saturday evenings until 9. HonoluluMuseum.org On the next Fresh Air, collaborating with Stephen Sondheim on three musicals, we talk with James Lapine. He wrote the book for the shows Sunday in the Park with George, Into the Woods, and Passion, and directed the original Broadway productions. His new book is a behind-the-scenes look at the creation of Sunday in the Park. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Outrigger Hotels and Resorts, committed to guest and employee safety, while also featuring the Malama Hawaii Experience, offering hands-on cultural learning in Malama Ka'aina, caring for the land, outrigger.com. New York City is familiar to Kumuhula Maika Kamoholi'i. He did a show in New York's Botanical Gardens three years ago, and that's where connections to bring his fashion to the Big Apple were made. He has scored a coveted invitation to this year's New York Fashion Week. His label is recognizable for its graphic design, and he comes from a long lineage of kappa makers. The conversation's Lillian Song caught up with the busy fashion designer. He also works as a genealogist and cultural director for the Waimea Hawaiian Homesteaders Association. But this past weekend, he became a junior firefighter of sorts when a huge brush fire impacted his community on the Big Island. You know, there's not enough fire trucks for this massive blaze and it just started coming like lava really and just it wiped out some homes and all of these homes is my family members and so flying it out to their houses with buckets with whatever we could and and then everybody's loading up totes and tanks full of water to go out there but then one of the problems is how do you get the water out so Mm -hmm. people are piping it to wherever they can but it's not really actually like spraying anything so my dad had Loaded two huge tanks in the back of his truck. <laughs> We're calling it the Hawaiian Homes Fire Truck. And him and another homesteader, one of our uncles, who is the fire chief in Honolulu, and he has property out here. So they hooked up hoses to it, the big fire hose. They, there was duct tape involved. There was PVC pipes. <laughs> they they mm-hmm. MacGyvered the whole thing onto this um, generator. Mm-hmm. Then they stuck the hoses into the big tank, cranked it up, and then it just started shooting like one full fire hose. We were out there going because we had to, like, fires was creeping up to our family's home. So we was going in the, in a regular F-250 with fire hoses shooting out of the back. And then our uncle tells us, he's like, put laundry detergent inside. So we all learned, we were all, now we're all, like, junior firefighters. 
you were doing what you guys needed to do. And just the creativity, the know-how all coming together, like you're saying, MacGyvering. <laughs> no, Great. absolutely. So we had our rehearsals yesterday, and so I walked into the hall. I looked like like a monster. I was just was covered in dirt and ash and everything. And I told them, thank you all for being here. Please excuse me today. You know, all of these family members are going to run practice and rehearsals today, but I'm, I have to be out there helping them fight this fire. So thank you all. And they were like, we understand. But it was so funny because I just thought we, we went from firefighting right into fashion models. Here we go. <laughs> well, I'm very, very happy to hear that you are safe and everything is under control now. Now let's pivot. Talk about yeah. your big moment in New York City. Where are you at now? How much time is left for you to pull off your show at Fashion Week in New York? I think we have about four weeks left um, before we leave. And we are still printing and sewing. My family has been really organizing everyone together that's going. We just started our first rehearsals. It's all just happening so fast, from getting the announcement to booking flights and accommodations and then getting into rehearsals and everything. So we started a GoFundMe. We realized that in this short amount of time that we have to raise funds to help cover the cost of everything that we need. You know, there's 30 of us going. And we've been trying to hook up with sponsorships from Hawaiian organizations, from the County of Hawaii, from anybody and, and everybody who who wants to help us will take it. What does being invited to Fashion Week mean to you? <clears throat> it's a funny story. Initially, when I was told about it and that we were invited, I didn't even flinch at all. It's never really been my dream to do it. And, um, <laughs> and then when I thought about it more, I started to get excited. Even if it's not my dream, I can create some connection and some sort of bridge for other people to be able to go. And if I'm the one that opens the door, then, I mean, you know, if somebody has a chance to open the door, open the door mm-hmm. so that other people can be let in. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I really took it as, hey, if this is my platform and I'm allowed to do this, then open the door, build a bridge, get other local designers from Hawaii in there, um, get more Hawaiians on the runway. You know, we're, we're, we have all kinds of beautiful curves to our bodies, mm-hmm. and they should be seen on the runway. We have such beautiful models and beautiful, beautiful... Uh, men and women from Hawaii that have such exotic looks, and they should be on the runway. They are, they truly can be big fashion models. We have that potential, but we don't have the opportunity. So I told myself, if this is the opportunity and it presents itself to me, then take it and do it for all our people and do it for Hawaii. This opportunity presented itself, and you want to showcase Hawaii, and you have a wonderful team of people around you allowing you to really get that on stage with you in New York, what will people be seeing? Oh, I can't, I can't even wait to see their reaction. I was explaining it to the producer, the executive producer of New York Fashion Week, and I thought the phone disconnected. <laughs> Are you there? There was nothing. Hello? Hello? And he goes, I'm sorry, my mouth was open, and, but nothing was coming out. He's like, you're really going to just knock the socks off of everybody here in New York. They're, they're not going to even know what hit them. I said, oh, yeah. We will. <laughs> and so really I'm showcasing um, different age uh, ranges, so different age groups. I have group A, B, and C, and the, from the younger ones all the way up to my auntie is in her 70s. Um, and just showing the beauty of, of every person, and especially as they age. You know, like mm-hmm. fine wine, the longer you hold it and the older it is, the, the more um, amazing it is. And so that's what I wanted to showcase was, even our older group that's showcasing how beautiful they are, like a fine wine. Uh, and we're, we're also showing the clothes as it gets more expensive. So mm-hmm. we're, we have linens that are being um, shown all the way to velvet and then like things that are a little bit more couture. So we're ending with gowns um, that we're sewing and, and printing right now, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also going to be showing kappa fashion. So I am a kappa artist. Um, and so we're showing Kappa Fashion. We are, they, they allowed me to do this big grand opening. So we're hitting the runway with full chanting and dancing. I'm doing a big hula mano on the stage, a shark dance on the stage. 
and um, some of my halal members are founding Kappa, um, and then I have cousins and an auntie that is chanting and singing. Uh, my cousin Amy Hanayali'i will be on the stage singing. Uh, and then we present all of our fashion, and then we close the show with a big, a big hula awana. So it sounds so exciting. It definitely you have this vision in your in your mind that you're bringing to life and sharing this with an international audience out there. Still preparing for a lot ahead. One final thought. Yeah, I would say you know, cheer us on, root us on, follow us. I believe the news stations will be following us to New York. And and we're taking everybody with us. You know, we're taking our Lauhala weavers with us in the in the form of their hats. We went and asked them to make hats for us. So uh, Auntie Barbara Watanabe them and all their their gang in Kona that weaves, they made us beautiful papale that we're going to showcase on the runway. Um, feather lays from the Kahalepuna family in Oahu and all those things. So with with that in mind, we're able to take everyone to the runway. So it's not just designs by Komoho Ali'i. It's not just me, but it's everybody and all of our arts of Hawaii that will be showcased on the stage. So hula, chanting, dancing, uh, fashion, and all of our arts. So it's, it's such a beautiful opportunity for us, and we're, we're so blessed to have this opportunity. That was designer Micah Kamohoali'i talking with HPR's Lillian Song. His island fashions, including last year's Grammy dress designed for his cousin, Amy Hanaili, hits the runway at Sony Hall in Times Square as part of New York Fashion Week, which runs on September 9th. We will share links on hawaiipublicradio.org. And that's our show for today. Tomorrow, we plan to hear more from Governor David Ige about the decision to send students back to the classroom, even as COVID cases rise. What do you think about the surge and the talk about mandatory vaccines? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. <laughs>